May the 8th, 1945. The world celebrates victory in Europe. After six years of fighting, the war in the West is now over. And it's the biggest party Europe's ever seen. At this great moment in their history, the people of Britain rejoice with their allies in the victory for which every one of them has worked so hard and so long. We know about the drunken singing, we know about the conga lines, we know about the homemade fireworks. It was one hell of a party. But this is the story of how events unfolded on VE Day, minute by minute across the world, with untold accounts from people who were actually there. It was over. It was freedom. It was the war. We'd won it. It meant the start of happiness, total joy. It's nice to be here to tell you what it was like. You will only hear. I have seen it. Tuesday, the 8th of May, 1945. Across the globe, millions are celebrating the end of the war in Europe. For six years, the world has been living under the cloud of war. 70 million lives have been lost. Normality has been put on hold. Today, in an extraordinary display of jubilation, people are pouring back out into the streets. Yet this fragile peace was only negotiated a little over 24 hours ago. A Dakota plane arrives at Champagne Airport, France. On board, German Chief of Staff Alfred Yodel has been brought here by the Allies to sign a document stating the unconditional surrender of German military forces. He's ushered into a waiting car and taken to a school in the city of Reims. There's a gathering of very important people in a schoolhouse, a temporary headquarters for the Americans. So you've got Yodel there, who's very high-ranking German chief of staff. You've got a high-ranking Russian representative as well, and you've got some Americans. The event is a circus. Besides the generals around the table, there are 60 spectators and 16 war journalists. Six years of warfare have come to this. It had all been about bullets and blood and guns, and actually what everyone is fighting for is a signature, and this is the moment when that signature, that pen, is finally put to paper. It's a very kind of sombre occasion. There's no singing dance, there's no whooping from the people that witness it. There was absolutely no euphoria at all. The end of the war in Europe is agreed and signed at exactly 2.41am on Monday the 7th of May. The agreement states that all hostilities will officially stop at one minute past midnight on Wednesday the 9th. Hearing this news was a moment many have never and will never forget. There's no other word to describe it, relief and happiness. No other words will do. Tout le monde était heureux. Euh, on avait 
quitter, les, les Allemands nous avaient quittés une fois et on espérait qu'ils ne reviendraient plus. Very much in lifting of a cloud around you, because you were always in fear. And suddenly, you didn't have that anymore. And so you felt the freedom. For millions across Europe, five years, eight months, and four days of bloody war are about to be over. Fathers and sons can now come home. And at the stroke of midnight on Tuesday, May the 8th, a day of celebrations can start. Victory in Europe Day. An armada of ships' horns announced the start of VE Day in Southampton docks. Thousands of people descend on the port to celebrate. It's chaos. A car's set alight, bonfires lit. All the ships that were in port at the time, they all sounded their horns. And that noise grew and grew and grew. So it was actually quite a cacophony of sound in the wee small hours. In the dockyards, searchlight operators of the 47th Anti-Aircraft Brigade turn their massive lights 90 degrees towards each other, creating a V for victory. The beams of light can be seen for 40 kilometers, like two fingers stuck up at the Nazi armies on the other side of the channel. At their Docklands warehouse in London, editor-in-chief of the Daily Express, Arthur Christensen, has been working through the night to get the first edition out onto the streets. As a vital piece of wartime intelligence, publishing the weather forecast has been banned since the start of the war. Of course, when you think about it, it makes sense. There were no weather forecasts. I mean, that would have given it away to the enemy. Oh, no cloud cover. Let's get the bombers out, guys. But not today. In the Daily Mirror, the headline reads, Wind freshening, warm and sunny at first, but rain can be expected later. Finally, Britain can obsess about the weather again. At 10 Downing Street, having read the headlines, Winston Churchill retires to his bed, with more than celebrations on his mind. Churchill is under a great deal of stress at VE Day. He really has an enormous amount to think about. He has a big fear about how the Russians will end up controlling Northern Europe. Also, he's very aware that his political situation is vulnerable. He's becoming more and more obsessed with where the politics is going to lie after the peace. In Japan, huddled round a long-wave radio set, Army medic and conscientious objector Desmond Doss of the American 77th Division listens to reports of the surrender in Europe. The 77th have been fighting in Japan for a year. Just a few days ago, they took the notorious target Hacksaw Ridge, where hundreds were left injured and abandoned. Corporal Doss, who doesn't believe in taking a life or carrying weapons, single-handedly and unarmed rescued at least 75 men. Today, every American gun at Okinawa fires a single round at 12 o'clock in recognition of the victory in Europe. So while this document is being signed in northeastern France, the war is very much still on in the Far East. And if you read the accounts of everyone at the time, there's a bit of dark humour there. They say, well, has anyone told the Japanese that the war's over? Because for them, it definitely hasn't finished.
Dawn breaks over the White Cliffs of Dover. Overnight, the south of England was drenched with sudden showers, but the clouds part with the promise of a warm and sunny day ahead. In Leicester Square, the first newspapers of VE Day arrive, still warm from the press. There's a scramble for these special editions, which will serve as a memento of this auspicious day. The headlines read, This was their finest day. It's all over. Wait for it till 3. At 3pm, 3 the nation will stop and listen to Churchill's victory speech. On the continent, a special edition of US military newspaper The Stars and Stripes is read by millions of soldiers on what's officially the last day of war in Europe, even though there are still skirmishes going on and resistance in Berlin. In a symbolic gesture, American troops destroy the Nazi party emblem. It was over. It was freedom. It was the war. We'd won it. And there'd been all the years of struggling to survive and really not expecting it to end so well. Well, it couldn't have been better. Everything had worked out. It was one of the greatest days that I ever lived when the war was over. Not just me alone. It was the entire country. It was everyone around you. It's wonderful. In Paris, crowds are taking to the streets and it's dawning on an excited 17-year-old Estelle Samuel that life is about to change. During the war, her best friend's family, members of the French Resistance, were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. C'était quand même un très grand jour pour beaucoup de gens parce que mon ami avait quand même sa sœur et son père qui étaient déportés et pour eux c'était également la fin de la captivité de, le, de leurs parents. Donc ça a été quand même un grand jour pour beaucoup de gens. Et pour nous, euh, le cauchemar était terminé. Et voilà. In Britain, thousands of people are trying to make their way into London. But transport chaos threatens to ruin the day. Having been told it's a national holiday, there's little information of what that actually entails. It was confusing. The local authorities had been informed and it was common knowledge there would be peace celebrations and that there would be this public holiday for two days. But quite when the public holiday began was a moot point. Oh, we have to wait ages and ages for a bus. People were queuing up. In the chaos and confusion, tens of thousands are desperately trying to make their way to the capital. Public transport threatens to derail what's supposed to be the biggest celebration the world has ever seen. Tuesday, May the 8th, Victory in Europe Day. After years living under the cloud of war, the people of Europe are waking up to a new feeling of liberation. In East London, 10-year-old John Warner is more than ready to celebrate. Woke up in the morning, still trembling with excitement from the day before. What's going to happen, etc., etc. Everybody seemed to be doing something. 
I met the gang of boys, and then things started happening. The mothers were saying, yeah, we've got to have a party, we've got to celebrate, you see. And bunting, God knows where the flags and the bunting came from, probably the coronation from 1937. Street, Winston Churchill, a man of routine, wakes at 7.30. And he's worried the biggest party in Europe will have no beer. Working from his bed, he calls for reassurances from the Ministry of Food. Fuller's, one of London's largest breweries, has had volunteers working through the night, bottling and delivering beer to pubs both in and outside the capital. For a number of businesses, VE Day is a chance to cash in. Over on Commercial Road in London's East End, there's been no sleep for the workers at Maurice Frankel's printing shop. He's reconfigured his printing presses for the big day. As well as producing his usual film posters, today he's also knocking out flags of the Allied leaders, Stalin and Truman. Across Europe, those who collaborated with Hitler are being brought to task. In Oslo, Captain Vidkun Quisling, the leader of the Norwegian pro-Nazi puppet government, is about to be arrested by the resistance. One of the greatest legacies of Quisling is a, is a new word in the dictionary, which basically means you're a traitor, you're a betrayer, you're a Judas. Because what the Germans tend to do is, is they will run the military side of things, but they don't want to be bothering with day-to-day -day governance of an occupied territory. So they find a puppet to do that. In Norway, it's Quisling. In a submarine off the coast of Norway, U-boat commander Heinz Schaefer is wondering what to do about his last set of orders. Hostilities won't officially end until shortly after midnight. He's the captain of U-boat 977. U-977 is a Type 7C. It's an absolute bog-standard U-boat of the Second World War. And the commander, Heinz Schaefer, his instructions are to get to Southampton, go into the harbour and destroy as many ships as possible. But Schaefer receives new orders. He must return to Germany and surrender. It's an indignity he's not prepared to face. So he says to all the crew, he goes, right, chaps, OK, this is my plan. I'm not going to go back to Germany. I am intending to sail us to Argentina. You know, anyone who's married, if you want to leave, I'll drop you off on the Norwegian coast. And then he gets going. He should have been in Southampton had he stuck to the original mission and had the war not ended. Instead, he eventually makes it all the way to Argentina. In Britain, an unfamiliar sound is ringing out across the land. Church bells were banned in 1940. They'd only sound if Britain was invaded, alerting military units under the codename Cromwell. Today, that threat has passed. Throughout all four British nations, there is this extraordinary peeling of bells, you know, calling people to celebrate, remember and enjoy the peace. In Doncaster, living with her aunt and uncle, is 12-year-old Pauline Harrison. Everybody was happy and singing. Church bells were ringing. The only time that would have rung if we'd, there'd been an invasion. So we hadn't heard them since 1939, you know. Miraculous. In 
In London, the largest bell in the British Isles calls thousands of people to St Paul's to worship. It's the second of 10 services today. 32,000 people will come to the cathedral. Among them is Godfrey Allen. Throughout the Blitz, he led a brigade of volunteer firefighters called the Watch, charged with protecting St Paul's. St Paul's had become hugely significant, this indomitable symbol resisting the attempted invasion of Britain. And there were those wonderful pictures that as London burns, there you have Wren's extraordinary creation. You can't underestimate its spiritual and physical significance. Today, Godfrey Allen and his watchmen can breathe a sigh of relief. Britain's cathedrals have been symbols of resistance. Incredibly, in the whole period of blitz and bombings, only one was ever destroyed. On November the 14th, 1940, a 10-hour blitz wiped out two-thirds of all Coventry's buildings, including its medieval cathedral. Today, the provost of the cathedral, Richard Howard, is leading services among the rubble, reclaiming the ruins as a symbol of faith and hope. Now, despite the rain, the people of Coventry have come together in the cathedral's broken shell to give thanks and look forward to rebuilding the future. This morning, the Eiffel Tower opens again to the public, even though early on in the war, the resistance cut the cables on the lifts, so access is only by stairs. Thousands flock to the Arc de Triomphe, but despite the celebrations, many schools remain open. So for Estelle Samuel, the day starts like any other. Nous allions au lycée et tout d'un coup nous avons entendu une rumeur que l'armistice était signé. Et pour nous on s'est regardé, on s'est dit c'est pas possible. On peut pas aller au lycée par une journée pareille. On a pris le métro, on est allé aux Champs-Élysées et là c'était la liesse. On a retrouvé beaucoup de monde, les gens se parlaient, s'embrassaient. Donc ça a été quand même un grand jour pour beaucoup de gens. In central London, the streets are swarming too. Despite transport chaos, people are flooding into the capital. Huge crowds are gathering at Buckingham Palace, hoping the royal family will make an appearance it's clear there's going to be an incredible celebration. And there's a scramble to find every available camera to record it. The BBC need to get their hands on as much tech as they can to capture the moment to beam it out beyond London into the empire and to the home nations. At Denham Studios in Buckinghamshire, the day's first scenes of the movie Brief Encounter are being filmed. But it's a distracted shoot. Between takes, Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson, the stars of the film, listen to radio reports about the crowds thronging to the capital. Meanwhile, a team of BBC technicians turn up and scour the studios, requisitioning one of the few cameras in the country able to record in colour. While Britain's buzzing, Winston Churchill, the man of the hour, is still in bed, crafting his victory speech. 
He's due to address the nation at 3 p.m., one of the day's most anticipated events. Churchill was a remarkable wordsmith. He had a real talent for words, and he studied it almost scientifically. He wrote his speeches in the rhythm of psalms. He was very interested in pacing, in phraseology. So he didn't just speak, he was consciously trying to manipulate the opinions of the people who were listening to him. And that's what marked him out as such a great politician. time approaches, in Askew Road in Gateshead, local policeman George Hugh has borrowed a camera and is filming his neighbours as they prepare to celebrate in a very British way. Across the country, children are sitting down to street parties and enjoying the little luxuries that are laid on. What I remember about my VE day is the jam tarts my mother cooked for the street party. Even my little sister could make a good jam tart at her age. As well as making jam tarts, families across the nation have been kept busy. All morning they've been baking cakes, preparing sandwiches and hanging bunting left over from George VI's coronation. One of the more unusual sandwich fillings that made an appearance on the street party tables was mock banana. It's made with parsnips, which you boil within an inch of their lives until they're almost disintegrating. You mash them up, starting to look a little bit like banana, and then you're going to add a little bit of banana flavouring. As street parties gather momentum in Britain, crowds in New York's Times Square are gearing up to celebrate. Throughout the world, throngs of people hail the end of the war in Europe. It is five years and more since Hitler marched into Poland. Years full of suffering and death and sacrifice. Churchill now leaves Downing Street. He's got just two and a half hours to finish his speech and run it past the king before he takes to the world stage for one of the biggest moments of his political career. It's 2pm in Britain. In just one hour, Winston Churchill is due to address the nation. He'll officially announce the Allied victory and the end of the war in Europe. In central London, over 100,000 people are in the streets anticipating this historic speech. Loudspeakers are being erected on buildings along Pall Mall, Trafalgar Square, Parliament Square and Piccadilly Circus and the crowds continue to swell. 16-year-old Tam Thompson and her family are heading by tube into the heart of London. We got out of the Strand Underground station and, of course, it's right on the corner of Trafalgar Square. And Trafalgar Square was heaving with people, soldiers, girls, general, public, just having a wonderful time, singing, dancing, shouting just enjoying themselves. But it's not just in London where people are gathering. All over Britain, thousands are coming together in streets and public spaces, excited by the promise of freedom. In Manchester, 15,000 people fill Albert Square, waiting to hear Churchill's speech. In Macclesfield Town Centre, 22-year-old Hilda Allen joined the party. There were just 
thousands of people. In fact, I think all Macclesfield was there. And I went with a friend. We just sang and sang and, oh, it was just a wonderful feeling. Not just in Britain, but across the globe, millions of people from families to prime ministers gather around their radios waiting to hear Churchill's speech. In the German protectorate of Brenjonets, German industrialist Oskar Schindler gathers together over a thousand Jewish workers in his factory to listen to Churchill's speech. Prisoners he single-handedly saved from concentration camps. Schindler, he's got radios around the factory. He knows that the war in Europe has ended and he stands up and he gives a speech to his workforce. And we know from accounts that the SS guards are slowly slinking off in the background. They've been leaving the factory site during the day, so the rumours are going around. But Schindler stands up and he announces that the war has ended and there's this wonderful moment of freedom coming to his factory. In Germany, prisoners at the Dachau concentration camp are listening in to radios they've kept hidden throughout their internment. Among their number is 20-year-old Jean Samuel, a member of the French resistance. Nous étions dans les camps en attente de notre retour sur Paris et le 8 mai, on apprend que la guerre est terminée et que la paix est signée. Ça a été quand même une joie pour beaucoup d'entre nous. A Belgian army convoy arrived at the camp to take their citizens home. Desperate to get back to Paris, Jean jumped aboard. Je suis donc monté dans ce camion et nous sommes sortis du camp en direction de la Belgique. Et là, nous voyons des trains qui partent sur Paris. Je quitte donc les Belges et je traverse les voies et nous montons dans un train qui était stationné et on est arrivé à Paris le lendemain matin. With minutes to go before Churchill's speech, the shouting and cheering in the crowd stops. In the public mind, things had not actually seemed to have happened until Churchill had said they'd happened. It was almost as if the war hadn't ended until Churchill, this figurehead of British society, the figurehead of the war leader of British politics, stood up and said, the war is over. At the cabinet rooms in Downing Street, in the very room where Chamberlain announced the start of the war six years earlier, BBC technicians check the microphones and camera lights are turned on. Churchill is dazzled, hot and clearly unsettled. If you're sitting there waiting to do a talk and there's lights dazzling you in the eye, that is annoying. I mean, it just is. And anyone making a speech, which is not just going to be to 
people of Great Britain um, and Northern Ireland. It's also to the free world. I mean, this is broadcast around the world. I mean, you'd be insane if you weren't a little bit nervous. And it doesn't matter how many times you've done that. You know, you are recording live. Yesterday morning at 2.41 a.m. at General Eisenhower's headquarters, General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe. We may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing. Advance Britannia. Long live the cause of freedom. God save the king. Everybody heard. Everybody seemed to stop what they are doing now. And everybody, we walk around and we hug each other. And, every, and we dance in camp and we hug each other. It was good. It was good. At the same time as Churchill's speech, two other world leaders simultaneously broadcast to their own nations. In the Oval Office of the White House in Washington, President Truman addresses the American people. The Western world has been freed of the evil forces which for five years and longer have imprisoned the bodies and broken the lives of millions upon millions of freeborn men. The victory won in the West must now be won in the East. At the exact same time, Charles de Gaulle addresses the French-speaking world. La guerre est gagnée. Voici la victoire. Pas une souffrance de ces hommes et de ces femmes prisonniers. Pas un deuil, pas un sacrifice, pas une larme n'auront donc été perdues. Vive la France! In central London, the crowds are heaving and still reeling from Churchill's speech. For some, it means the war's finally over. For others, the heat and excitement are overwhelming. But now, the party of a lifetime can get underway. Friends and land girls, Cynthia Cavello and Joyce Digley, who have travelled all the way from Surrey, are cooling off in the fountains at Trafalgar Square. At a street party on Bellingham Estate in East London, 10-year-old John Warner is swept up by the singing and dancing. I remember all the words, but it went something like this. I'll be with you in apple blossom time.
in apple blossom time. All together now, I'll be. And we're swaying backwards and forwards. Now, that was the music at the party. People were dancing in the streets. The happiness, the singing, the joy, the dancing, it meant the start of happiness, total joy, and a memory. Sorry. Never fades. Palace after hours of waiting, rumours are spreading that the royal family are about to appear on the balcony for the first time. The crowds are shouting, we want the king. As the young princesses Margaret and Elizabeth peek through the curtains at the spectacle below, they start plotting a way they can join the party. Central London, the epicentre of the VE Day celebrations where over a million people have gathered. On Fleet Street, celebratory balloons have all sold out, so resourceful traders are selling inflated condoms instead. Now the flags and rosettes are almost gone. Piccadilly Circus is gridlocked and the police have to clear a path so buses can get through. It's incredibly exciting and you want to be where the action's at. At 3.30pm, the royal family appear on the balcony of Buckingham Palace for the first time. King George, Queen Elizabeth, 14-year-old Princess Margaret and 19-year-old Princess Elizabeth finally step out. This is just the first of seven appearances in front of this crowd, which will go on beyond midnight. You've got the little Elizabeth, still very young. She's not even 20. She's in her little ATS uniform, doing what other girls of her age do, conscripted to fight for king and country. There is something rather beguiling and affectionate. It's understandable why people went mad. During the war, Elizabeth worked as a mechanic, a lieutenant in the Auxiliary Territorial Service. These formative years were as close as she'd come to being an ordinary citizen. With the war at an end, those days will soon be over. Ahead lie the duties and responsibilities of being a queen. As the royal family look out over this sea of celebration, Tam Thompson arrives in the West End, eager to celebrate with her mother, father and sister. She's got even more reason than most, because today is her 16th birthday. Because I was sweet 16 and my mother felt it would be nice, she booked up to go to a show in London. And then, of course, just before we went, Churchill announced it was going to be VE Day. The show was happy and glorious, and it was Tommy Trinder, and he was a top comedian of the time. But I just remember the whole cast coming onto the stage, flags being thrown, excitement on the stage as well as off it. Sam Coalfield, RAF mechanic Albert Jarrett is in the mood to celebrate. At the 
start of the war, he took a two-week boat journey from Jamaica to Britain in order to serve. Tonight, he's making a beeline for the nearest pub. The commanding officer in our camp said, go, go enjoy yourself. The gate was swung open in the evening and we all went into certain coal field in the town and the pub was filled with all people in blue, in uniforms. Pubs are proving to be a vital part of the VE Day celebrations. All over the country, they're the go-to places to party. At the Feathers on Lambeth Walk in South London, thankfully, the beer's still flowing. But they do have a problem. They're running out of glasses. So people are bringing their own. In London's West End, 30-year-old Anne Bohr and her friend Elizabeth Edwards pass pub after pub looking for a party to join. I don't know how much we knew where we were going, but Lincoln's Inn Fields, one of the largest squares, was where there was dancing going on. Despite all the laughing and dancing surrounding them, Anne and Elizabeth struggle to enjoy the celebrations as their thoughts turn to Elizabeth's fiancé. He was out in a battleship in the east. So, you know, whatever rejoicing we were having in Europe, for her, it was a matter of extreme anxiety. His Majesty the King speaks to his peoples and his fighting forces throughout the world. Outside Buckingham Palace, the crowd has grown. The police have reported there are about 100,000 people. They've come to listen to the King's speech, which will be both filmed and on the radio in just half an hour's time. Inside the palace is a nervous King George. Well, the King is a rather shy character, and he has this stammer, which he's largely overcome by 1945, but speeches are torture to him. And again, you know, the free world is listening to this. Speaking from our empire's oldest capital city, war-battered, I would never for one moment daunted or dismayed. Today, we give thanks to God for a great deliverance. Dusk falls across Britain, London lights up. Victory day changes to victory night, and the darkening skies over London are lit by the joyous lights of peace. At this great moment in their history, the people of Britain rejoice with their allies in the victory for which every one of them has worked so hard and so long. I think that's when it becomes really atmospheric, particularly because they've got these huge, powerful searchlights which have been built and were once used to find German bombers. And now they're used to light up all of the magnificent buildings around Trafalgar Square and particularly of St Paul's. Since September the 1st, 1939, Britain has been plunged into darkness. Fears that light would be a target for bombs led to the blackout. Now, as Tam Thompson leaves the theatre, though, she literally steps into the light, into a dazzling, illuminated West End. It was lit up. London was lit up. People were lit up, as well as the streets. 
It was just excitement and carrying on. I mean, I imagine Trafalgar Square went on all night. We didn't stay there all night. We had to go home. My mother would not have wanted us staying there longer than necessary. But it was. It was very exciting. Now, for the fifth time on the balcony, watching the crowds partying below, Princesses Elizabeth and Margaret make an extraordinary request of their parents. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think we look up at the balcony and think, what would it be like to be up on the balcony? And, of course, the Queen's looking out at the floodlit buildings and the thronging crowds and thinking, I want a slice of the action, thanks, Daddy. The King reluctantly agrees to let the princesses join the celebrations. With a few friends and security by their sides, Elizabeth and Margaret leave Buckingham Palace by a side door and slip unnoticed into the street. She's in uniform, of course, and apparently she pulls her cap down so she can't be recognised. And one of the Grenadier guards who escorts her is like, nah, you got where you uniform properly. Blending into the swarming mass of party goers, they make their way down Piccadilly, joining lines of conga dancers. The streets of London are absolutely humming. People are out on the street, they're buzzing, they're walking around, they're waving their flag, they're shouting till they're hoarse, they're standing on street corners until their ankles are sore. They're all there and they want to be there. It's like the last day of the proms, but on a massive, massive scale. There are stars and stripes everywhere. There are people clambering over fountains, people clambering over statues. There are people kissing at the top of lampposts. It's complete chaos. The future queen meets a soldier and swaps hats. They pass a bonfire in Piccadilly Circus, and there are more unrefined sights the young princesses certainly weren't expecting. After a five-mile jaunt through central London, the princesses arrive back at the palace gates just before midnight. But instead of heading inside, they send word to the king and queen asking them to come out onto the balcony so they can see them through the railings just like everyone else. Possibly for the last time in their lives, the two princesses are just ordinary people lost in the crowd. Although the E-Day's now over, in the Far East, war still rages. In India, American troops illuminate the Taj Mahal. In Berlin, the Soviets force German generals to sign a second surrender. In Moscow, Stalin pronounces his very own Victory Day. In New York, it takes 15,000 police to control the crowds. And all across Europe, hostilities finally, officially end. Overriding everything was this sense of relief. Suddenly it was all over. Life was going to be special again. The feeling in everyone, in everyone, not just me, the feeling in everyone was what you call excellent. Excellent. 